Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Welcome back to CRST, the podcast. I'm your host, Laura Straub, editor-in-chief of CRST. And in this episode, we're giving a nod to our top three podcasts of 2021, because it wouldn't be the end of the year without another best of list. Am I right? In order of popularity, the top three CRST podcast episode topics of 2021 were disruptive technologies, cataract surgery complications, and improving efficiency with advances in FACO technology. First, we'll circle back and hear from University of California, Los Angeles, postdoctoral scholar fellow, Matt Gerber, about how robotic cataract surgery is poised to be one of the top disruptive technologies in ophthalmology. Robotic systems have been widely incorporated into many surgical applications because of their higher precision, greater maneuverability, and potential for improved sensing capabilities compared with manually performed surgical procedures. However, the pace at which robotic systems have been integrated into ophthalmic surgery has lagged behind that of other surgical fields. This difference can be attributed to the unique advantages of manual ophthalmic surgery, including direct visualization of the surgical workspace and the unhindered maneuverability of intraocular instrumentation. These advantages have eclipsed the apparent benefits of incorporating robotics into the ophthalmic surgical theater. Furthermore, significant progress has already been made towards improving surgical outcomes through the incorporation of -of state-of-the-art digital microscopes, advanced fluidics control during phacoemulsification, and femtosecond laser-based cataract surgery. Nevertheless, manual surgical procedures are constrained by the physiologic limitations of the human surgeon. Precise physical manipulation of intraocular tissue is hindered by inherent hand tremor, an inability to sense forces below those of human tactile perception, and a lack of sufficient depth perception to resolve microstructures or identify tissue planes. These limitations do not hinder a robotic system to the same degree, and this has inspired extensive research and development during the past two decades. Here, we highlight the beginnings of robotic surgery in ophthalmology, describe how robotic surgery is being used today, and discuss its future potential for cataract surgery. Since the early 1990s, dozens of robotic systems intended for intraocular surgical use, ranging from handheld to articulated robotic systems, have been prototyped and evaluated in research laboratories across the world. The Micron, a fully actuated handheld robotic instrument developed by Carnegie Mellon and Johns Hopkins Universities, has been shown to reduce hand tremor to provide a smooth, scaled motion during surgical procedures. A demonstrated application includes retinal vein cannulation on artificial vein models. A research group at Vanderbilt University incorporated a B-mode OCT probe into a pair of microforceps to form a handheld surgical device that allows visualization of the membrane surface during epiretinal membrane peeling operations. The researchers showed that the tool-to-membrane distance could be known in real time from the OCT visualization and that this knowledge improved a surgeon's performance during membrane peeling in ex vivo godis. In terms of articulator robotic systems, a research group at the Technical University of Munich demonstrated a mechanism small enough to be mounted to a patient's head. This device was used to perform a range of intraocular procedures, including subretinal injection and deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty. Recent work incorporates OCT-based needle segmentation techniques to expand the boundaries of autonomous surgical procedures. To our knowledge, the only robotic system to be developed specifically for cataract surgery is the Intraocular Robotic Interventional and Surgical System, or IRIS, from the University of California, Los Angeles. Presented in 2013, the IRIS was the first robotic system to demonstrate simultaneous use of two surgical instruments, teleoperated capsule and entire cataract surgery on ex vivo pig eyes from start to finish. 
More recently, the iris was integrated with an OCT system to perform a range of autonomous surgical procedures, including partially automated lens extraction. In that work, preoperative OCT scans were used to generate a lens extraction trajectory, and intraoperative OCT scans localized around the tip of the IA handpiece were displayed to the surgeon to enable real-time anatomical evaluation. On an ex vivo pig eye model, posterior capsule rupture, PCR, was avoided in all trials, and nearly complete lens extraction was achieved with the iris. To date, the Precise Surgical System is the only robotic surgery system dedicated to ophthalmology to become commercially available. The system consists of a joystick-like motion controller used as an input by the surgeon and an instrument manipulator that mounts to the surgical instrument. In 2018, the Precise was used to perform retinal membrane peeling and subretinal injection in human patients. With this system, a high degree of tooltip positional precision can be obtained, and virtual boundaries can be imposed to restrict unwanted movement and prevent iatrogenic retinal trauma. The Precise group continues to publish research results with their system, and at least three devices are currently being used to, in hospitals across Europe. The first in-human experience with the robotic laser femtomatrix was first presented in 2019, and the system can be used to photoemulsify a cataract. The company reports that the femtomatrix may be used to perform about 80% of the surgical procedure without human intervention. The first group to demonstrate inhuman robot-assisted retinal vein cannulation was Minutia, a spin-off of the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. The surgeon and the co-manipulator robotic system simultaneously hold the same surgical instrument. In the 2018 Phase I clinical trial, an anticoagulant was injected into the retinal veins of four patients with retinal vein occlusion for up to 10 minutes. Development of the system continues, and the company is attempting to commercialize the technology. Meanwhile, research on the iris continues at the University of California, Los Angeles. The goal is to develop a system that is capable of performing fully automated cataract surgery. The most recent work demonstrated partially automated polishing of the posterior capsule in ex vivo pig eyes by using transpupillary OCT scans of the anterior segment. In related research, a deep learning-based method was used to guide an IA handpiece to autonomously extract lens fragments from ex vivo pig eyes. This work provides a foundation for autonomous cataract surgery guided by artificial intelligence. Also, a few startup companies, namely AccuSurgical, Cambridge Consultants, Foresight Robotics, and OptoRobotics, have received seed funding for their unique visions of intraocular robotic surgical systems. While these companies are reported to be working towards clinical trials and the CE Mark certification, no current evaluations of these systems are known to exist. The integration of robotic systems could improve cataract surgery in several ways. First, access. The number of trained cataract surgeons is inadequate to meet current demand, and this shortage is expected to worsen as the population ages and the prevalence of cataracts increases. A robotic surgeon could help increase healthcare access by performing routine surgery on patients with cataracts that are not complex. Second, efficiency. The seamless integration of all surgical steps into a single system could improve surgical flow and decrease operation time compared to manual surgery. Furthermore, it would not require relocation of the patient as is currently necessary for femtosecond laser-based cataract surgery. Third, safety. If we add up all the intra- and post-operative complications, including refractive errors, an estimated 50% of patients will experience suboptimal outcomes. For example, posterior capsule pacification rates are around 30% at five years, PCR rates are around 5%, and suboptimal refractive outcome rates are around 30%. By standardizing treatment, a robotic system could enable every surgeon to improve outcomes. The greatest surgical risk originates with cataract removal. For example, PCR remains a common complication largely because of the difficulty of sensing the location of the posterior capsule during phacoemulsification, irrigation, and aspiration. Novel technologies capable of sensing the posterior capsule exist, for example, intraoperative OCT, 
but their data is not well integrated and is difficult for a human surgeon to interpret. Recent advances in computer vision techniques allow a robotic system to be trained to make sense of this data and to safely guide the surgical instrument. It could do this with greater resolution and a faster response time than a human surgeon is capable of, thereby reducing the occurrence of surgical complications that arise from improper tool positioning, excessive aspiration forces, and ultrasound power. Another potential future benefit is reducing posterior capsule pacification through complete polishing of the entire capsular bag. Currently, human surgeons are limited by an inability to visualize the lens equator, the difficulty of sensing the position of the posterior capsule relative to the tool, and inadequate control of aspiration forces and response times. Robotic solutions include the incorporation of novel visualization technologies that are capable of imaging the capsular equator, robotically guided tool positioning, and high-resolution control of aspiration forces with fast response times. If well integrated, these capabilities could allow safe and complete polishing of the entire capsular bag without increasing the risk of PCR. Finally, the integration of robotic systems could improve cataract surgery through automation. For example, the augmentation of surgical decisions through the incorporation of artificial intelligence is a major anticipated development. Robotic cataract surgery is especially well-suited to automation because the surgical protocol is remarkably consistent and is composed of the same specific and routine procedures. An existing example is the use of a femtosecond laser to create the cornea incisions, perform the capsular rexus, and fragment the lens prior to manual extraction. A more ambitious but not infeasible application is to automate the entire surgery, effectively eliminating the requirement for a surgeon to hold the surgical instruments. Such a goal can only be achieved with improved feedback from OCT or another imaging modality that's closely integrated with the robotic system. Guidance by artificial intelligence would be required to make surgical decisions with limited or no input from a human surgeon. Despite increased accuracy and precision, tremor filtering, improved visualization, and other potential benefits of robotic cataract surgery, significant obstacles remain to the technology's incorporation into routine practice. The advent of femtosecond laser-based cataract surgery in 2010 is a case in point. Even a decade after its inception, this technology is not yet established as a standard technique because of added costs, questionable added value, and interruption of the surgical flow. These issues and others must be addressed if intraocular robotic surgical systems are to become commonplace in operating rooms across the world. In conclusion, the full potential of surgical robotics and cataract surgery lies in developing an integrated robotic system that adds significant value over current manually performed surgical techniques. Improved knowledge of surgical instrument positioning through the use of OCT and high-precision robotic systems has the potential to reduce or eliminate anatomical damage such as PCR. Nevertheless, improvements to current robotic systems and their acceptance into general practice are required before cataract surgery robotic systems can be widely deployed. The topic of surgical complications is always popular with our readers and listeners, so it's no surprise that the second most popular episode of CRST, the podcast, is strengthening your mental grit in the OR, cataract surgery complications. Recapping his article on the dropped nucleus is Christos Ifentides from Denver Health Medical Center in Colorado. Most cataract surgeons will encounter a dropped nucleus at some point in their careers. This is especially true for those who take on non-routine cases. Proper training and clear thinking can help to provide the highest level of care to patients who experience this dreaded complication. The preoperative cataract evaluation is a critical step in planning for potential complications during surgery. What should you look for? Any risk factors for generalized complications during cataract surgery is a risk factor for a dropped nucleus. This can include poor visualization because of a small pupil, 
or interoperative floppy iris syndrome, and a mature or dense cataract. Other factors, such as zonulopathy, prior trauma, and a history of ocular surgery, for example, vitrectomy, also raise concern about a possible complication. Which risk factors are most dangerous specifically for a drop nucleus? An article published in 2020 reviewed 1.7 million European cataract surgeries and created a list of the leading causes of a drop nucleus. The multivariate analysis found the following statistically significant risk factors listed in order of significance. White cataract, prior vitrectomy, or preoperative visual acuity, small pupil, pseudoexfoliation, and diabetic retinopathy. I was surprised to see white cataract at the top of the list, but it makes sense. White cataracts can be pressurized, soft or very dense, fibrotic, iatrogenic, or post-traumatic with zonulopathy. In short, white cataracts are unpredictable in nature and harbingers of bad things to come. Imagine the lens begins to sink during surgery. This is not an ideal time to make a game plan. Prepare in advance for the worst by determining the equipment and products you will need to get the job done. Much of my strategy depends on the resources available to me. I have worked on five different continents in low-resource settings. My approach to dropped lens depends on access to retinal care and the burden placed on the patient. If there is no realistic option for retinal care, I may be more aggressive about trying to retrieve a fallen lens. This situation has happened to me only once abroad, but realizing that you have no retina backup is stressful. I advise giving this matter serious consideration before deciding to do surgical work abroad without adequate training. This article, however, focuses on high-resource environments such as the United States, Canada, and Europe. In this setting, I have five main goals when a drop nucleus occurs. Goal number one, ensure adequate pain control. The administration of a subtenon's block is helpful because surgery will take longer than expected and you want your patient to be comfortable. Prioritize anything you could do to reduce the patient's pain and fidgeting. I favor a 50-50 mixture of lidocaine 2% without epinephrine and bupivacaine 0.75% injected using a green balm cannula placed through a conjunctiva tenon cutdown. This provides quick, short-acting anesthesia and it can keep pain at bay for hours. Goal number two, remove the vitreous from the anterior segment. A thorough anterior vitrectomy is crucial if the presence of vitreous in the anterior segment is suspected. Otherwise, cystoid macular edema, infection, and retinal tears or detachment may occur. Vitreous strands can also compromise the placement of an IOL. I suture the main wound and create a separate paracentesis to improve fluidics and chamber stability. Even if the suture must be cut to allow the placement of an IOL, and the main wound resutured again, these steps are worth the time. Triessence, either dilute or small undiluted quantities, is used to stain vitreous if present in the anterior segment. Kenalog may be administered for the same indication, but it is considered an off-label use. If you use the Centurion Vision System, I recommend making a separate procedure setting that is dedicated to anterior vitrectomy. For instance, Procedure 8. By creating an entirely separate procedure setting, you can use the foot pedal to switch back and forth between cut IA and IA cut without the help of your scrub tech. Special thanks to Greg Glassman from Alcon for teaching me this. Goal number three, place a lens. Implanting an IOL optimizes the patient's ability to see even if a cataractus lens is in the vitreous. Of course, a posterior chamber IOL requires adequate anterior capsular support. The options are to place a three-piece IOL in the sulcus 
or with OptiCapture, or to implant a three-piece or one-piece acrylic IOL in the bag using reverse OptiCapture. For any OptiCapture procedure, an intact cap capsulotomy that is smaller than the optic is necessary. If capsular support is inadequate, I do one of two things. Either I place an anterior chamber IOL, or I leave the patient aphakic and consider placing a secondary IOL at a later time. This decision depends on the age of the patient, the risk of glaucoma, uveitis, and corneal endothelial disease, and the patient's overall visual prognosis. Goal number four, allow a retina colleague to address the dropped lens. Fishing for a dropped or dropping lens can lead to pain, cystoid macular edema, and retinal tears or detachment. Personal ego must be put aside, and the retrieval of the lens must be left to a retina colleague. Even if you get most of the cataract out, residual nuclear chips, epinucleus, or cortex may cause persistent inflammation, pain, and hardship for the patient. Goal number five, know when to watch and when to refer. Some cataract surgeons prefer to observe patients to see if retained nuclear fragments resolve on their own. Many articles have been published on the optimal timeline for vitrectomy in an eye with a dropped nucleus or retained nuclear fragments, and the argument for early referral and surgery has been well documented. A particularly useful systematic review and meta-analysis focused on the timing of vitrectomy for retained lens fragments. Vanner et al. concluded that significantly better outcomes, including visual acuity, retinal detachment, increased IOP, intraocular infection or inflammation, are achieved with earlier vitrectomy. For these reasons, I prefer early referral and management by the retina team. This is a difficult conversation to have, but it's much easier if the complication was addressed with the patients during informed consent. Because I perform fewer routine surgeries these days, my preoperative conversations are robust. I cover general risks, but also highlight the specific issues for which a patient may be at increased risk. My conversation always includes the following statement. Quote, if I don't feel like I can get all of the cataract out safely, or if I can't implant the lens safely, there could be a need for more surgery later. I will do whatever I think is safest for your eye. End quote. Even with routine surgery, you are much better off not breezing through the informed consent. If you discuss the potential complications in depth with the patients before surgery, you can lean on that discussion after surgery when you talk to them about an intraoperative complication. Studies show that deserting patients, devaluing or failing to understand their and or their family's views, and communicating information poorly are major components of malpractice claims. When complications arise, showing the patient that you care about the outcome takes time, energy, and focus. It can derail an efficient clinic or OR schedule. It is, however, the easiest way to avoid erosion of the doctor-patient relationship. More importantly, it is the right thing to do, and it is something we would expect from our own doctors if a complication happened during cataract surgery on our own eyes. The third most popular episode of CRST The Podcast was the 20th anniversary of CRST, improving efficiency with advances in FACO technology. Resharing his article is James A. Davison from the Wolf Eye Clinic in Iowa. FACO emulsification has changed a lot since 2001 when CRST debuted, and I was halfway through my career. 21 years before then, I learned to perform phaco emulsification from my partners John Grather and Russ Watt, 
who themselves had learned to perform the procedure at a course directed by Charles Kilman in 1972. Kilman published his pioneering work in 1967 when I was a junior in high school. I learned more about fake emulsification from Bob Sinsky, Dick Kratz, Tom Mazzocco, and Mike Colvard, a friend of mine from my residency at Mayo Clinic. When I joined the Wolf Eye Clinic, the surgeons there had transitioned from using the original Cavitron Kelman Faco Emulsifier, which they lovingly called Big Bertha, to using the Coopervision 8000 Faco system, which was introduced in 1978. That unit had a foot pedal that, when pressed, activated ultrasonic energy. We had to assemble the large handpiece, which featured vibrating metal plates and separate hoses from a fluid bath to cool those metal plates. The circulating nurse turned a knob when we asked for more or less energy. Vacuum was fixed at 47 millimeters of mercury, the same level available with the succeeding 1985 model, the Coopervision 9001. This model featured a piezoelectric handpiece and linear FACO power activated with a surgeon-controlled foot switch. It also had a high and low vacuum settings for cortex removal. With those early machines, we simply debulked the central nucleus by shaving it away and emulsified the peripheral nucleus from the outside in. Imagine eating a hamburger that way. While repeatedly prolapsing a new superior edge so that the FACO tip could aspirate new lens dust. With repeated rotations of the nucleus until the entire peripheral edge was eventually shaved away, only the central posterior plate was left to be emulsified and aspirated. With all the revolutionary advances since the birth of phaco emulsification in 1967, who would have thought that we'd be using the same core technology today? Several landmark advances of surgical techniques were made in the 1980s and 1990s. These included the development of capsulorexis, divide and conquer, cortical cleaving hydrodissection, phaco chop, stop and chop, and FACO pre-chop. FACO chop techniques could be executed safely thanks to the development of viscoat, which protected the cornea, and improvements in technology that allowed surgeons to simultaneously control vacuum level, flow rate, and tip movement. With Elcon's introduction of the Legacy 20,000 in 1993, surgeons could control vacuum up to a whopping 101 millimeters of mercury and use 0.9 millimeter diameter aspiration bypass system tips. Ten years later, the introduction of the Infinity Vision System allowed surgeons to control vacuum up to 500 millimeters of mercury. The Infinity also integrated pulse and burst programming, and an upgrade two years later permitted torsional tip movement for increased nuclear followability. This helped to reduce phaco time and balance salt solution volume. With torsional ultrasound, larger chunks of the nucleus could be separated and aspirated more efficiently. This system still required small situational adjustments because relatively abrupt changes in dynamics could make the posterior capsule more vulnerable or cause the iris to shudder, decreasing pupil size. The Centurion Vision System replaced the Infinity in 2013. Its 0.9 millimeter intrepid aspiration bypass system balance tip increased emulsification efficiency while minimizing tip movement of the FACO tip shaft at the incision. Refined computerized blending of torsional and longitudinal tip motions improved the control with which quadrants of all grades could be aspirated. 
the integrated dual pump technology of the Intrepid and its programmable IOP and vacuum flow ramps greatly refine fluidic controls and intraoperative behavior. My technique has evolved over time, but my goal remains the same, to maximize capsule zonular integrity and minimize corneal endothelial cell loss. I've always believed that the machine-calculated total dissipated energy of the FACO tip affects corneal endothelial cell density less than the proximity of the tip and the pieces of the nucleus that grind against the cornea. The further away from the cornea, the better. I still create four separate quadrants and hollow out the nucleus as much as possible while it is in situ in the capsular bag. The bulk of each quadrant can be reduced by aspirating as much deep nuclear dust as possible while creating an intracapsular space in which to emulsify the remaining relatively two-dimensional plates of the nucleus. This helps to protect the cornea when larger pieces of the nucleus are drawn into the anterior chamber for emulsification. The average rate of endothelial cell loss for hard cataracts with this technique is 5%. The capsule is protected by the physical insulation offered by the nuclear plates underneath the quadrant that is being emulsified. Until five or six years ago, I used a customized, modified cyclodialysis spatula by Stortz SP7-71996. This reduced the diameter from 0.5 millimeters to 0.33 millimeters. I also used the Connor wand to tear the posterior nuclear plate after sculpting deep grooves. This maneuver was hard to execute if the nucleus very soft or very hard. Art Weinstein reintroduced me to the Akahoshi Prechopper, which I now use in about 80% of cases. I find this instrument to be extremely helpful for separating soft quadrants. For quadrants with greater nuclear color or nuclear opalescence, that is harder quadrants, I use the cyclodialysis spatula or the Connor wand. For very hard or mature cataracts, I even use the Akahoshi Prechopper under an OVD after grooving. The instrument is placed curbside down to crack the posterior nuclear plate completely with almost no nucleus displacement. I switched to the epinucleus setting to aspirate enough OVD before I reestablish fake emulsification tip energy, thereby trying to prevent thermal damage to the corneal incision. Optimizing my personal settings on the Centurion provides me with a level of control that gives me confidence in any challenging situation. I'm not aggressive in my settings so that I can be proactive rather than reactive. For soft nuclei that resist cracking, the sculpt setting is used to debulk the nucleus, and the epinucleus setting is used to aspirate successive clock hours of peripheral nucleus as it is rotated towards the tip. This rotation often results simply from the aspiration of successive new material at the tip. For firm nuclei, the sculpt setting is used to create grooves. After cracking, the deeper firm corners are shaved away from each quadrant. Drawing in the first quadrant of soft nuclei can be challenging. In my experience, the epinucleus setting provides foot pedal controlled vacuum adjustments with preset vacuum trigger tip movement so that I can gradually draw the first quadrant away from the peripheral capsule. I then can switch to the pre-programmed vacuum rise time of the quadrant removal setting and control amplitude of the FACO tip motion with the foot pedal. To improve fine control, the last quadrant or two can be carefully acquired in position using the epinucleus setting at any time during quadrant removal. If the nucleus is hard, I will re-inject a dispersive OVD 
especially before aspirating the last quadrant. I wish I could trade in my first 10 years of practice for another 10 now, but I know that that's not going to happen. I've been lucky to enjoy so many advances in phacoemulsification. I don't know how it can get much better, but I know it will. Congratulations, CRST. You have delivered timely and accurate information and insight that have allowed ophthalmologists such as myself to improve our surgical techniques, practices, and patient outcomes and experiences. I look forward to another successful and meaningful 20 years of this publication. 2021 was quite the roller coaster year. I can probably speak for everyone when I say that I hope 2022 is calmer and bright. Whatever the ride may bring, we look forward to the changes and innovations that will surface in the new year. We're striving to bring you fresh new content and even have a few tricks up our sleeves to promote deeper analysis and unscripted discussions with some of CRST's top contributors each month. We hope you'll join us.